you do it. Well, good evening, everyone. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 3, so let's go to 1 Kings chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to it. And as you're trying to find where 1 Kings 3 is, I want to ask you a question before we even read the passage. If you could tonight, if God was to ask you for anything, if you could ask God for one thing, what would you say? So if God was to show up and say, I will give you whatever it is you want, what would you say in response to that? And there's no conditions, there's no limits, there's no ties on this whatsoever. God is asking you, just ask me and I will give it to you. What would you ask for? I wonder, would you ask for health or wealth or prosperity? I wonder, would you ask for success or power or prestige? I wonder, would you ask for wisdom? Would you ask for wisdom? Maybe having a look around, you think that some people could ask for a little bit of wisdom that's sitting around near you. Would you ask for wisdom? I think that's a strange thing to ask for. Maybe because I'm not a smart person or a wise person, but I think it's a bit of a strange thing to ask for. If you could ask God for absolutely anything, would you ask for wisdom? Because the person in our passage, King Solomon, that's exactly what he asks for in this passage. And as we start the passage, and as David said at the very beginning, Solomon is known as the wisest person. Like he wrote the Proverbs, which are known for words of wisdom, little nuggets of wisdom. The wisest person probably in the world but as we start this passage, he is the complete opposite to wise. He's been very foolish, and maybe at first read, we don't pick that up. But the wisest person in the world is being the most foolish person at the very start of this passage. So let's read the passage together, set the whole thing in context. 1 Kings chapter 3, I'm going to read pretty much the whole chapter here. This is God's word. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Then go to verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and asked him, Ask for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on the throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant discernment or wisdom to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but you have asked for wisdom in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. 
Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among the kings. Then just drop down to verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The woman, the other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is your son. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, This one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. While the other one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. Then he gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my Lord, give her, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him cut him in two. Then the king gave this ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is the mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. What a story. What a narrative we are in tonight. We're going to pray because we need to pray and then we're going to unpack this crazy but beautiful passage together. So let's pray. God, this passage is here for a reason. It's not a filler. It's not a mistake. It's not just for a little drama. It is here to teach us a powerful lesson about you. And about us. So spirit come. Spirit move. Spirit fall in this place. Spirit move across this place. And if there's distractions in this place. May they dissolve now in the name of Jesus. If there's busy active minds in this place. Then may that stop and halt in the name of Jesus. If we're just here to punch in a half hour and not be challenged by your word, then I pray that you by your spirit will stop us in our tracks and will you speak powerfully into our lives tonight and may we leave here changed. I ask these things in your name and for your glory and everyone said, Amen. Amen. What a chapter. I wonder how you would preach this chapter tonight if I suddenly took on well and had to get off the stage. What would you do? How would you unpack this passage? What did you ask for? I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but what did you ask for? When I said, if you could ask God for anything, what did you ask for? Was it wisdom? I'm not sure we would ask for wisdom. We would ask for other things like health and wealth and prosperity and long life and success and popularity and all that, but maybe not wisdom. Solomon asks for wisdom, and he asks it for a very important 
reason. But as I said, in the very start of this chapter, so forget that little bit at the end. Forget that little bit at the end. In the very first half of this chapter, it seems like Solomon is doing the absolute opposite of what it is to be wise. He is being very, very foolish. Because I wonder, did you notice that in the opening first, first one, he does a trade deal with a foreign nation and he marries a foreign woman as well. And that may not seem like such a big deal. Like, it may not seem like a big deal whatsoever. Maybe it's quite refreshing with today's politics that two sides are able to make a deal. Wouldn't that be amazing if just two sides could decide, let's just make a deal? That would be amazing. With no backstops and with no delays and with no special customs, whatever, or not having to meet on a Saturday, but meet on a Saturday and actually get something sorted and all leave as friends. Isn't it just refreshing tonight to have two sides get together, make a trade deal, and everyone's happy? What's a big deal? Or Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter, and love is love. What's the big deal about that? It's just nice that two people have fallen in love. Well, the big deal is that God says it is very unwise to do trade deals with other nations, and it's very unwise to intermarry. And the reason for that is that it will not end well for you. It's all over the Old Testament. If you know your Old Testament, these two things, which might not seem obvious tonight, are super obvious. They're really obvious because I did a bit of a research on this, and I found 11 verses that warned God's people Starting in Exodus, 11 verses which warn God's people, do not do trade deals with foreign nations. I find 17 verses which warn God's people 17 times not to intermarry with other foreign nations either. And it might seem like a bit of a killjoy that God is doing that, but God knows that sin will kill our joy. So for example, don't do trade deals with other nations. You have Exodus chapter 23 that says this, do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Or in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. As I said to our modern ears today, that sounds like super harsh of God. That sounds like the harshest thing. That sounds like God is such a killjoy. But as I said, if these people do these things, they will fall into sin. And it is not God that steals our joy. It is sin that steals our joy. So God is warning the people. And it's kind of important as we land in 1 Kings 3 to remember this, to remember that God is holy and God has some rules and regulations that the people in these passages are supposed to live by. The whole context to 1 King 3 or the whole context of the Old Testament is simply this. God chooses out of love, out of grace, out of mercy, out of his own wisdom, he chooses one nation. That one nation get called Israel, they get called God's people, they get called the people of God, they get called God's treasured possession. What God does with this people is he puts them in the middle of the known world, a place called Canaan or the promised land. So if you've got an old-fashioned Bible with you tonight and you go to the back, sometimes people do that when they're bored in the middle of a sermon, they go to the back of the 
Bible and look at the maps, you will see these two maps. These are probably the only two maps that you need to know from the Old Testament. This is right bang in the middle of the known world. And God is going to bring his people, put them in Canaan or put them in the promised land. And he's going to put them there to be like his people. They are not to be like the nations. They put them there in the middle of the known world as a living display of God's goodness, of God's grace, of God's mercy. Now, they're surrounded by other nations. They're surrounded by what we call other pagan nations, other pagan nations that don't know God, that don't follow God, that don't like God. God's people are supposed to follow God alone, worship God alone, look to God alone, and obey God alone. But they're surrounded by people that just don't do that. In fact, they're surrounded by evil ways wicked, pagan nations that have practices that are very violent and very against what God has told his people to live by. So they're put in the middle of this place to be a witness, to be a display. In fact, right through the promised land, you have things called highways or trade routes that intersect right through the middle of the known world. So if you wanted to do trade deals, if you look at the next map, if you want to do trade deals, particularly with Africa and with Europe and with Asia, you had to go through Israel. So if you wanted to do business, if you wanted to import or export, everything had to go through Israel. Everything had to go through Canaan. Everything had to go through the promised land. And right at the middle of that promised land, as everyone's passing by, is God's people who are a living witness, a living display of a better life. And as you walk past, as you passed through, you were supposed to look at God's people and say, I want that. I want whatever they have. I want that. And you were supposed to desire God. You were supposed to desire a better way. So that's why sometimes when we read through like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and we just kind of go, why would you have all these rules and regulations? It is just so long and it is just so boring. Why is that important? Well, it's really important if you are going to place your people in the center of the world as a living witness to God's goodness and God's greatness. Now, this whole journey to the promised land started way back in Genesis chapter 12. So if you're in 1 Kings 3 and you go back 900 to 1,200 years earlier, you are in chapter 12 of Genesis. And there in chapter 12 of Genesis, God makes a promise to this really old guy called Abram. And he promises Abram that they would have a child and that they would have a family. And from that family, they would turn into a clan. From that clan, they would turn into a tribe. From that tribe, they would turn into 12 tribes. From those 12 tribes, they would turn into a great nation that you could not count. And here we are in 1 Kings chapter 3, probably 1,200 years later, and guess what Solomon is celebrating in verse 8. He says this, Here I am in the midst of your chosen people, a nation so great and numerous you cannot count them. This is a beautiful fulfillment of a promise that God has made about 1,200 years earlier. And here we are with that promise fulfilled. It's been a long and it's been a painful journey, but we finally, have see, we finally see the fulfillment come true here in this here part of the passage. An old guy called Abraham who had an old wife called Sarah who couldn't have children at this point when God shows up to make the promise. But God miraculously breathes life into her womb. That one child turns into family, clan, tribe, great nation, and here we are. 
And sometimes God does impossible things. And he uses this moment. He uses it. Like this is a thousand, three hundred years worth of Old Testament history. And he uses, he sets the stage on this most impossible situation to do the possible. And sometimes God needs to give us promises that are birthed in moments that you just don't believe could ever happen. They seem impossible, but through perseverance and through the testing of faith and through waiting and through the trials of life, even when all the odds are stacked against God, even for all that time when all the odds seem stacked against God, God moves, God does, and God acts. And God births something in the middle of that. And the reason he does that is to prove to you and me that he is able, he is faithful, and he is stable always. He does that to prove to us that he is God and we are not God. He does it to prove that even when life changes, when seasons changes, when weeks changes, when months changes, when years changes, when decades change, God is always the same. He is unchangeable. He is unstoppable. He is uncompromising. He is always God in the midst of these moments. And Solomon should have known that. Solomon should have known that God is always in control and that you should obey what God tells you to do. But in these opening verses, he doesn't. He does a trade deal with a foreign nation and he marries this woman from a different land as well. And you have to stop even there. Even if you go back too much in history, you have to even stop there and think back 480 years. 480 years before 1 Kings 3, and you're in Exodus. And when you're in Exodus, you have to think, well, Egypt and Israel didn't see eye to eye. They weren't besties back then. Israel were held as slaves back then. For 400 years, they were held as slaves. So here they are doing some kind of trade deal. What's that all about? That's strange. That's not good. And Solomon brings back Pharaoh's daughter and he brings her back and he waits. He waits until his palace is finished. He waits until the tabernacle is finished or the temple is finished as well. And in that moment, there's this little hint that he is mixing both culture and church together. And sometimes it's really good to mix culture and church together, but sometimes it's really, really not a good idea to mix those two together. A little compromise here, a little compromise there. Sometimes that is not a very wise thing to do because here's what happens. Normally one of them crumble. And if it's anything by one king's standards to go by, usually the one thing that crumbles is not the culture. It thrives. But sometimes what crumbles when we mix those things together is actually the church. And that's exactly what happens in this story of the king of Solomon. We're looking at the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, which cover the life of Solomon. I've said this in the very first sermon. The best way to summarize these 11 chapters of the life of Solomon is to talk about temptation. This is the temptation of money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. In these chapters, you will see the very best of Solomon. You'll see some of the most wonderful highlights in this guy's life. But if you go to the end of his reign, probably 40 years later, 
you will see that he ends his reign looking more like Egypt's king than the king God wanted him to be. It started so well. It started with a kingdom that was so strong and so powerful and so united. But 40 years later, lots of sin and compromise crept in. In fact, if you were to jump forward 380 years from one king Three, you will find that because of sin, because of compromise, the kingdom splits in two. In fact, it splits so badly that 380 years later, it completely dissolves and is lost forever. And it's at such a low point. Like you want to start one kings as a high point. You want to start one kings by saying there's been about 1,200 years to get us to this point, the high point, the pinnacle point And just with a few compromises, just with a few wrong decisions, just with a few unwise moments and choices and a fudge here and a fudge there and a compromise here and a compromise here, everything crumbles. That's a really long introduction to the chapter that we're in tonight. But I think it's a really important introduction tonight because it reminds us and it warns us tonight that the fall of a kingdom or the fall of a king, or the fall of a nation, or the fall of an individual rarely happens overnight. It's this slow, gradual, rotting from the inside out. And that's exactly what happens in here. This doesn't seem like a big deal. Trade deal, what's a big deal? Marion Ferris daughter, what's the big deal? It doesn't seem like a big deal, but these small, seemingly insignificant steps are catastrophic for the kingdom. I can't put that any other way. It is catastrophic. And if you go to the end of this book, you literally will find that the kingdom is lost forever. That's how we end the Old Testament, craving for a king, craving for a better way. It's just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment from this point. Tozer says this, sin is a poisonous weed that throws the whole nature out of order. The inner life disintegrates. The flesh lusts after the forbidden pleasures. The moral judgment is destroyed so that good appears evil and evil good. Time is chosen over eternity, earth over heaven, and death over life. That sums up exactly what's going to happen in these next number of chapters in 1 Kings. But 1 Kings chapter 3, let's, let's call it a bit heavy, wasn't it? A bit of a heavy introduction to sermon tonight. Forgive me for being so heavy. Sometimes I just do that. Let's turn a positive. Our king, Solomon, is a good guy in chapter 3. And he asks for wisdom. Hooray, it's all good in this chapter. He asks for wisdom. And it's not the type of wisdom that makes you look good. It's not the type of wisdom that makes you intelligent. It's not the type of wisdom that gives you knowledge. It's not that type of wisdom that means I don't need to revise for my exams. I'll ace them because I'm just wise. It's not the type of wisdom that's really helpful in a pub quiz. Or it's not that annoying type of wisdom because we all have that one friend that thinks they know everything. You know that kind of wise person that gives you the advice, that stupid advice the other day for the whatever it is you bought? Maybe it was yourself. You listened to yourself. I don't know. The wisdom that Solomon asked for in this passage is a wisdom to govern and to lead a nation. And he comes to God in this chapter in a real sense of humility. That's how he approaches God. He doesn't come demanding. 
You notice that whenever God asks him, what do you want? He just doesn't rhyme out this list of things. He comes in humility. In fact, one of the things he does in this passage is that he acknowledges his weakness. So some chapters will say that he's a child. Some will say his youth. So basically what we get from that is we know that he is young and inexperienced. So depending on what commentator you you listen to or read, you will discover that whenever Solomon becomes king, he's probably 12 years old or 20. Probably in King's 1 Kings 3, we reckon he's around about 20 years old. So he's young and he's inexperienced, so he acknowledges that before God. So that's one thing. But I think much more than that, way more than that, he is coming and he is acknowledging that he is king over God's people. This great, fast nation, and he understands the weight of that. He understands the responsibility that is on his young shoulders. So the best thing to ask for is to ask for wisdom. Solomon asks for wisdom and he gets wisdom. That's the first half of the chapter. Then we come to the second half from verses 16 right through to the end. So you kind of expect once he asks for wisdom, the next bit will just be blown away by some strategy that he came up with. Some amazing wise thing that he did. That's what we expect. Some military strategy, some kingdom strategy, some political strategy. That's exactly what we expect to come next. But we move into quite a difficult second half of the passage. And this is the first test of wisdom that we find in this passage. So we don't know how long has passed, but it says, verse 16, that sometime had Sometime later in the palace, these two women walk in and they have something they need to settle. There's a huge debate. There's a huge fight. There's a huge argument between both these women and they both come in to the king for the king to sort this out. It's a famous story, but it's a really tragic story. Like it's one of those stories that once you hear, you cannot unhear. It's uncomfortable. Like it is, all I have done all week is think to myself, one, how am I going to preach this on Sunday night? But secondly, what on earth is this doing in the Bible? Like seriously, why would you decide this is a good story to include in the Old Testament or the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible? What is going on? Because there's a flashback in this story. So these two ladies come into the king and then all of a sudden they flash back, they go right back to where this story all happened happened. And the context or the setting of this is, well, how can we describe it? It's all a bit shady. It's a very shady setting. So all of a sudden, we've gone from the royal palace to the red light district. Our camera then takes us into the delivery room, except the delivery room is not a delivery room that we would know in a hospital. It's a brothel. But it's not just any brothel. It's an old, deserted, isolated, forgotten, abandoned brothel. And the only two people that are in that are these two women. Both these women have given birth to babies, three days apart. And that's all we see in this passage. It's all we see in this passage. And I think that's painful. And I think it's sad. It's a reality. But there is no medical staff. There's no father or partner in this story. There's no family. There's no visitors. There's no social welfare officer in this. It's just these two ladies and their two newly born babies. 
One woman awakens in the early hours of the morning to feed her baby, only to discover tragically that that child is dead. And moments later, she then discovers that the child that is dead in her arms isn't even her own child. Can you imagine the panic that must have come over that woman? Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine all the questions that that lady must have had, thinking, where on earth, where in the world is my child? And then just down the corridor, you hear a familiar cry, a cry that you recognize. And you get out of your bed with a dead baby in your arms, and you walk down the corridor into another room. And in that other room, there is a strange woman who is nursing your baby that is alive and well. This is the most tragic and horrific of stories. It's a story of she said, she said, and there are no witnesses in this at all. It would seem that in the middle of the night, one lady wakens up to realize that she has rolled over and suffocated her newborn baby. She then gets up in the middle of the night and she creeps in or sneaks into the other room and she swaps out a dead baby for a healthy baby and carries on as if nothing has happened. She said, she said, no witnesses, no CCTV, no one else knows what's happened apart from these two ladies. And I think the most tragic part in this story, from what I can read and from what I can do just from this passage is that the dead baby is completely ignored and completely rejected and completely abandoned in this story. The fight immediately starts over this baby that is alive. And I will have to stop my imagination to think what happened to the other child in the story. This is horrific. Someone needs to come into this story with a little bit of wisdom and solve the whole thing. So aren't we grateful that our boy Solomon asked exactly for that a few chapter, or a few verses earlier? What's Solomon going to do to fix this? Because these two ladies are now standing in front of him arguing and fighting. What on earth is he going to do? Well, in a rather shocking move, as if this story was lacking on the shock factor, he asks for a sword. A sword comes, a sword is raised high in the air, and just before the sword comes down on the child, Solomon says, we will just cut this child in two. One half will go to one mother, one half will go to the other. And in that moment, a mother screams for all she is worth. No, stop The other lady can have the child. Let her take the other child. The real mother in this story is willing to give up all parental rights so that the other woman, the wrong woman, gets the child if it means that her child lives. And in that moment, in that moment of love and compassion and pain that just screams out, Solomon knows who the real mom is. And the baby is reunited with her mother. So it's kind of a happy ending. But it's not really a happy ending because there's still a mother that's lost the baby in the midst of that. One earth, I'll say it again, one earth is these verses, verses 16 to 28, doing in our Bible. You have to ask, what is Solomon doing in these verses? So examine what he's doing. What's the first thing he does? Well, the first thing he does is he invites both these women in. He allows them to come into his presence. He allows them to stand before them. He listens 
to both these women. That's the second thing he does. He listens to one accuse the other, and then the other accuse that woman. He listens is the second thing. The third thing he does is that he does something which seems most drastic to bring about a solution. And the fourth thing, he gets a solution, and he discovers who the real mum is, and they unite one with the other. But again, why include that? in this passage. And why, according to verse 28, is this the moment where the entire nation set up and go, Solomon, Solomon is wise. Why are they so impressed? Why does that prove his wisdom? Like, why not throw a Rubik's Cube at him and get him to solve that? Why not get him to solve Brexit or something like that? Why does it have to be something so painful and drastic and horrific as this moment here? Why this story? Because, and this is going to sound awful, but this is the reality of this if we're back in Bible times. So we'll have to go back 3,000. We're doing a lot of jumping forward and back in tonight's sermon. But let's go from today and jump back 3,000 years ago. If you're 3,000 years ago and you're in this story, you will know that these two women are prostitutes. The setting is a brothel, an isolated brothel. And you would know from biblical times that these two women don't actually deserve anything. They are the lowest of the low. They are despised. They are unwanted. They had no rights. Even if they had rights, no one cared about their rights. No one literally cared about these women. They were useful for one thing, then they were disposed, they were rejected, they were thrown aside. They were the lowest of the low. No one should have given them the time of the day or let them in. They were labeled the scum of the earth. And children that were born to prostitutes through no fault of their own, but they also got branded exactly the same as their mothers because of who they were associated with, because of who their mum was, and because of where they grew up. They also were labeled the scum of the earth. And religious systems and social systems completely rejected these women. Here's the point. They should not have got into a sermon at a seven o'clock service in Willowfield Church. We shouldn't be talking about them. And the reason we shouldn't be talking about them is because they should never even got as far as 1 Kings 3. They shouldn't even be included in this story because here's the thing, they should never have got an audience with the king. And that is exactly the point. That's the, that's the whole thing that unlocks this chapter or these verses from 16 to 28. Solomon is a wise king. Solomon's wisdom is seen in how he leads and in how he governs the nation. He is a godly king. He is a just king. And he is just towards the rich in society, but he also is just towards those that had no voice in society. These two prostitutes didn't deserve any justice simply because of the labels they carried. Yet here they are. This is so beautiful and powerful. Here these two nobodies are standing in front of the most important, the most powerful person in the entire world, bar none. They are standing in the very presence of the king. They have an audience with the king, and that king invites them in. He listens to them. He acts, and he solves the problem. And this whole part of the chapter reminds me a lot of sin. And it reminds me a lot of who we are. 
Because sometimes when we talk about sin, we like to talk about other people's sin, not our own sin. So it's easier to talk about someone else's sin. It's easier to put labels on someone else. It's easier to put other people in categories. It's easier to say, well, their sin is so much worse than my sin. Or it's easier to judge in our own hearts and our own minds who deserves to be in the inside of God's kingdom. Who deserves to be in the little elite groups of churches that we like to do. But sin... And we all sin. Sin keeps us from God or sin separates us from God. Sin is the thing that isolates us. So we might not be like these two ladies in the passage, but there are certain things in our life or even just take sin. Sin isolates us from God or separates us from God and lands us in a moment that just feels like a nightmare. Like my whole life feels like a nightmare right now, but it's actually reality. That's exactly what these ladies must have felt in this passage. So here we are, all of us tonight, not just looking at the two prostitutes, but all of us, me, me. None of us deserve to stand before a holy God. None of us deserve to be heard. None of us deserve to have our case brought before God or to have excuses or whatever we want to do. None of us deserve to get to stand before the King of Kings. And here's the other part. None of us actually deserve a solution because we rebel and we reject God and sometimes we're happier just doing it that way. But here's the thing. We tonight get to stand in the presence of the King of Kings. We get to come before God and stand before God regardless of our state and regardless of our conditions, regardless of the mess that we have made of our life. And all this is possible because God acts in justice. And the way that God does justice seems equally as shocking as what happens in 1 Kings 3. And this suggestion that you would cut a child in two is a solution because no one in their right mind thinks that's fair. Like there's a, there is not a single person in this room tonight that thinks it is fair that a young, innocent, pure, perfect, sinless baby would have to be sacrificed in order to appease these two bickering prostitutes. But then is it fair that an innocent, pure, perfect, sinless baby boy is born into the gospels and grows up and he is beaten and he is whipped and he is mocked and he is nailed to a cross because of sins that he did not commit, but sins that we committed. How can that be fair? In many ways, the gospel story sounds as shocking and as horrific as 1 Kings 3. In fact, it doesn't sound like wisdom at all. It does not sound like wisdom at all that God would send Jesus Christ in our place to buy our freedom, to purchase our freedom, to make us right before God. It does not seem wise. It seems the absolute opposite of wise that God would act in such a way. But it is grace and it is mercy and it is love and it is scandalous and it is beautiful. And it is our only hope. 
to stand before the King of Kings. And the beautiful thing about it is, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of the mess or the state or the condition of your life, regardless of that, because of Jesus, you can stand before the King of Kings with no shame and with no guilt and with no condemnation, not because you're awesome and I like you, I do like you, but you get to do it because God in his grace and mercy and love and forgiveness sent Jesus so that we could have a relationship with him and that we could stand here tonight and worship and praise him. Paul Tripp has this beautiful quote, and I'll end with this. So maybe you're here tonight and you think, I've made an absolute train wreck of my life. This sin that might not be as like these two ladies in this passage. Maybe it is. Maybe it's worse. I, I, don't, I don't know you. I cannot see the inside of your life. And that's one hand, it's not even any of my business. But maybe you think I've made an absolute train wreck of my life. Jesus, God, Holy Spirit would not want anything to do with me if they could see the real me. That is not what the gospel says. And that is not what the gospel is about. Listen to this by Paul Tripp. There is no sin too great. There is no act too heinous. There is no person beyond hope. The offer is open and free. There's no requirement of age, gender, ethnicity, location, or position. God welcomes you to come. He, only, he asks only that you admit your sin and seek what can be found only in him, forgiveness. He is able and willing, get this, with a grace that we will maybe never be able to fully grasp, he says, come, come. Let me pray for us tonight. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come with the, the fullness of your presence. Come in this place. Will you fall in this place? And will you move in this place? And you, will you move in hearts in this place? And in this moment, may the entire busyness of the world and the entire busyness in our mind and in our heart just pause for a moment of supernatural silence where you, by your Holy Spirit, come and invade and interrupt to our lives with your truth. So Spirit of the living God, come and breathe life. Come and breathe hope. Come and have your way. Come and move so powerfully in this place and ask these things in your name and for your sake and for your glory and for the person that is resisting, for the person that says, my life is too broken and too messed up. May they hear you say, may they see you with open arms saying, come, come. In your name I pray. Everyone said, amen.